Hey, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Men and women in black. Hey, yes. If Metallica can do it, we can do it. Uh, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you here. If you have a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Now, we have so much to cover. So much to cover this morning. If you are new to us, we are thrilled that you're here. There's a connect card on your chair in the seat back in front of you. Let us know that you are here. Uh, we are meandering through the book of Luke, although we will cover quite a bit uh, this morning. And so um, I want to go to Luke 1, then we're going to hit Luke 3, then Luke 4, then Luke 7. Then maybe a little Malachi, a little Ezekiel, back to Luke 7, and we'll call it a day. All right, let's go. Luke chapter 1. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, we're going to put all of the scriptures up on the screen. I'll try to do my best in giving you a bit of context. We firmly believe that uh, the central story of the scripture is easily understood by anybody. No background required. We also believe that you can spend your entire life in this book and continually learn something new. It is that deep. And so what we try to do is we try to not just drop into passages and drop out. We try to give a whole bunch of background as we come to various stories about Jesus. And so we want to do a bit of background this morning. We'll start in Luke 1 and we'll go to verse 67. This is after an announcement was given by an angel to a barren couple. This is how the book of Luke begins. Zechariah and Elizabeth receive an announcement they're going to have a son. That son is going to be named John. That son is going to prepare the way for Messiah. And at this point in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is prophesying over his son about what his son will do in God's economy. So uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people, that's a very important phrase, and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation that is not a trumpet, that is a reference to strength. In the house of his servant David, that was funny. Evidently, I was the only one that thought so. But it was an orchestra joke. I mean, that was a... Okay. Nope, nope, nope. As he said through his prophets, his holy prophets of long ago. Now, this is key. Verse 71. This salvation is salvation from our enemies... And from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant. So, central to the conception of what God was going to do was to deliver his people from their enemies. Now, in this particular case, the enemies had um, a very specific face. The enemies were Rome. Rome occupied Israel during this time of history. And the, the Jews viewed the Romans as just these godless pagans uh, who were not only blaspheming themselves, but they were causing Israel to stumble in her worship of the one true God. And so when we, we read Zechariah's words, there's this sense of salvation, not just like getting people into heaven, but also there's the salvation of delivering us from the people who hate us. Now flip over uh, to Luke chapter 3. And here we meet John, this boy, uh, except now he is, uh, he is preaching out in the wilderness. We've looked at this. This is all, if you've been with us for a while, this is all stuff we've looked at. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness calling people to be baptized. And so he says, verse 7, this is very warm and fuzzy, you children of snakes who warned you 
to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, hey, we're ancestors of Abraham. Because I tell you that out of these rocks, God can build up ancestors for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, warm and fuzzy. Go if you would to verse 15. Or no, go 16, verse 16. John says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff, chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, so what is, what is John's view of what Jesus is going to do? What is that? You don't get the winnowing fork imagery? Is that why you're hesitating? He's, he's coming to judge. Right? He's coming to fulfill this, deliver us from the enemies who hate us thing. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. Now, this is all going to add up here in, in a moment. Luke chapter 4, this is, um, we spent several weeks on this text. Jesus is uh, preaching, at least in Luke's account, his inaugural message. It is hometown. And in verse 16, Jesus went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, Everyone was looking at him and he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the story goes on from they were amazed at his words to literally at the end of the story, they're trying to throw him off a cliff to kill him. And one of the reasons we've looked at for the, for the change between, oh, this is amazing to kill the guy, is the way Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. So this is all review. Fire up the iPad. This is the original text from Isaiah, Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release of darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then what's it say? And the day of vengeance of our God against Israel's enemies. Now, do you remember that part on Jesus' version? No, here's Jesus' version. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Period. And he cuts off the part about vengeance of our enemies. Now, his hometown was a bit confused by this. Jesus anticipates their rejection of him. Flip back to Luke 4, or stay there, I guess. We never flipped anywhere. And in verse 24, he says this, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Jesus is preaching to his hometown people and being rejected by them. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. 
And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And at this, they proceed to try to kill him. Now, what Jesus is doing, again, I'll review, hopefully, is that Jesus is remarking on the fact that there are times in the past when God has done work outside of the covenant people of Israel because of Israel's hardness of heart. And he gives two very famous examples from Elijah and Elisha. One that has to do with the healing of a foreign army leader, Naaman, who was a a general in the army that was opposing the people of God, and he gets cleansed. And then Jesus also references a story about a widow and the healing of this widow's son being brought back to life. Okay? You don't have to know those stories for background, but I want to draw your attention to them because when we go to Luke 7, like we will be now, we're going to read about... A story involving a military leader and a widow and the raising of her son from the dead. And I just, want you to, I just want to show you that these aren't just stories thrown together like, you know, then Jesus did this and then this would be a good time for him to walk on water and let's maybe have him feed some people. No, there is an agenda. There is something being strung together to lead you to a conclusion about who this Jesus is and what he is like. So, Luke chapter 7. Now, Austin, who you know teaches over in the commons, he's covering both of these stories in greater detail than I have time to. All right, because there's a lot of good stuff in these that we have to rush over. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished saying all this, now the all this was, we've spent like months in Luke chapter 6, this big teaching called the Sermon on the Plain. Blessed are these people, cursed are these people, love your enemies, all of those sorts of things. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant. Now, a centurion either, in this case, was working for the local uh, leader or was actually part of the Roman army. A centurion was not a Jewish person. This was a Roman commander, most likely. There was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly, was sick, and was about to die. The centurion heard all about Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews, so some of the leading folks in the city, to Jesus, asking him to come and heal the servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man, this centurion, deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and built our synagogue. So Jesus said yes, and he goes with him. Now, what's interesting is the Jews are saying this guy deserves it, but the guy himself... When Jesus was not far from the house, when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So, in other words, the Jews say, hey, this guy has really helped us out, so can you please do a favor for him? But the guy sees Jesus coming and says, oh, oh, oh. I'm not even worthy of this. And we think he was somehow aware of the propriety of, in those days where Jewish rabbis did not enter into the house's of non-Jewish people, or they would be deemed unclean. So he stops Jesus on the way, and then says this incredible thing. Verse 7, second part of verse 7, but say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I myself understand authority. I'm under authority, so I obey orders, but I also have people under me that I command. I tell this one, go, and he goes. This one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, he says, hey, I know what authority's like, and you've got it. 
When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Twice this word is used. Jesus being amazed at something. And turning to the crowd following him, the crowd of Jews that were following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Which would have been slightly hard to hear. Then the, men sent the, then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, in my Bible, there's a paragraph break and a whole new section title. As if he were talking about something new. Nope. We just had a, we had a healing involving a military commander who was not a Jew. Now we're going to have a widow and her son. All right? Same Old Testament text that Jesus referred to back in Luke 4 that would have been well known by his audience. He's embodying these things now. Soon afterward, verse 11, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So that's it. She's not only a widow, but she lost her only son. There is no male to advocate or care for her. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And it's this beautiful Greek word that talks about compassion from his guts. And he said to her, don't cry. Then he went up and touched, and how do you pronounce this word? Beer? Beer? I didn't want to say beer. The plank of wood? The coffin? Give me something. Hey, New Testament professors, you got anything for me over here? What is it? Beer? Okay, I'm going beer. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still. Now, when Jesus, now we just saw an instance where Jesus healed somebody not even being in the same room with them. So anytime Jesus touches something, he's doing it on purpose. So in this case, touching the bier, see, the coffin. Touching this would have made him unclean. But as we've seen, Jesus is clean trumps any other unclean, right? So it doesn't matter what Jesus touches. Whatever he touches becomes holy. So he touches this thing and brings the whole procession to a halt. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. Hey, mom, what's all this? What's this party? And Jesus gave him back to his mother, which is a reference back to that story with, with Elijah. They were all filled with awe and praise God. And then they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. Why would they think that? Because he's doing the stuff that the prophets did. God has come to help his people. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, my Bible has a, a paragraph break and a new heading. But we're not talking about anything new now. Just look. Verse 18, Jesus is, Jesus is, John's disciples told John about all of these things. What are all these things? Well, the healings we were just reading about and others like them. Calling two of his disciples to him, John sent them to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, this is kind of a bombshell. No one saw this question coming because In Luke chapter 1, we find out John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb when he comes close to Jesus, when the two moms meet. This was the guy that baptized Jesus and heard the voice. 
of anybody who should know the real, true, authentic identity of Jesus should be this guy. But as the narrative is unfolded, John finds himself in prison because he was preaching against the local Herodian ruler. And so he asks this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What in the world is that? Now, background. Are you guys hanging in there okay so far? More background. What a very common way that Jewish teachers would dialogue with each other and their students was called something, it was called the hinting method or the remez method. And it involved quoting a part of a verse to reference an entire passage. Okay, so, so if I said to you, um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you would know, I'm talking about Star Wars, right? The whole thing. If I said, the Lord is my shepherd, you got the rest of it, right? I don't have to say the rest of it. You know what I'm talking about. Or, for God so loved the world, right? John 3.16. I mean, so we do this today, but these folks were so literate and had so much of the Hebrew Scriptures committed to memory that you could just bust out a couple of words and people would know you were pulling in the whole context. So, some people think that what... John is asking here has to do with this phrase, this unique phrase he uses, are you the one who is to come? So there are some scholars think that there's, he's quoting here from a couple of Old Testament texts and he's really asking something bigger than just, hey, are you the Messiah? So let's look at two of those texts. Let's go to Malachi. All right, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Go to Malachi chapter 3. I know, it's awesome. It's awesome. I'm alone in that assessment, evidently. I am alone. All right, Malachi 3. And then we're going to go to Zechariah, which is immediately before this. Okay, so just get ready. Malachi 3. Now, verse 1 is used by Luke to, to describe John the Baptist all over the place. Jesus references it. Like this was kind of John the Baptist's job description right here. Malachi 3 verse 1. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now we'll see that reference about John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. All right, awesome. So far, so good, right? He's going to come. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In other words, he's going to deal with good and evil. He's going to deal with clean and unclean. He's going to deal with the righteous and the wicked. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. In other words, he's going to purify the temple. He's going to purify the priesthood. He's going to put it back to the way it should be. Verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners of you, among you of justice. Okay, so when God comes, according to Malachi, what's that going to be like? 
Sounds like there's some judgment. Would you agree? So, John the Baptist has said, Hey, Israel, who warned you to flee from the coming judgment? The axe is already at the root of some of you. Ready to cut down any of you that don't bear fruit. Repent and be baptized because there's one coming greater than I who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff. So could it be that when he says, are you the one to come? He's asking, so where's the purification of the temple? Where's the judgment of the foreigners? I mean, it's nice that you're doing all this really cool stuff, but Should we expect another? Is this making sense so far? It just didn't, this isn't adding up. Flip back to Zechariah, another potential reference. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So when John says, Are you the one who is to come? Is that just a random phrase? He's just sitting in the jail going, Ah. Are you the Christ? No, that's too obvious. Are you the Messiah? No, no, no. Are you the one who is to come? Yeah, that's it. Or was maybe he was asking, was he asking something else? Verse 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is what Jesus does, right? His triumphal procession. Right? Rides a donkey, I mean, that whole thing. This is, this is where that comes from. See, your king comes to you. The one who is to come. Something is a direct reference to this. Your king comes to you. And then notice verse 10, though. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. In other words, I'll bring peace. He, whoever this king is, will proclaim peace to where? The nations. And his rule will extend from sea to sea. In other words, he'll be king over everything. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your what? Your prisoners from the waterless pit. Okay. So maybe John sitting in prison is saying, hey, where's the judgment and the purification? Where's the saving us from our enemies? Where is the peace and the rule that you're supposed to have over the nations? And then maybe, just maybe, where is the release from the prisoners? As he himself sits in prison. Now we don't know for sure. But this is how Jewish dialogue worked. And I think this is right because of the way Jesus answers these questions. Are you the one who is to come? I think means two things. Where's the judgment that was promised? As I sit here in this godless pagan's jail, and maybe, am I going to get out? Go back to Luke chapter 7. Jesus answers with a remez, a combination of a bunch of different passages, just hints where all of these are in view. Notice, Luke 7, verse 24. You still following? We're still good? Mm. Several, for several of you, there was no movement at all except maybe to yawn. Luke 7. 
Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Verse 21. At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. We just had one of those. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Oh my goodness, now. Okay, what Jesus is doing here is so incredible. He strings together several quotes from Isaiah. And passages in Isaiah that talk about the new restoration, the new exodus of God's people into new salvation. So what Jesus does, and it's so good. Go ahead and put this up there. Jesus refers to prophecies in the book of Isaiah uh, of six signs which the Messiah will give when he comes. He will make the blind see, Isaiah 29, 35, the lame walk, Isaiah 35, 61, cleanse lepers, Isaiah 61, make the deaf hear, Isaiah 29, 35, raise the dead, and evangelize the poor, Isaiah 61. All right, so he's stringing together a bunch of things that he is, in fact, actually doing, right? We've seen him cleanse lepers. We're going to see him heal deaf people. I mean, this is what he's doing. But again, what does Jesus leave out? Central to this list of texts is, see that Isaiah 61 reference again? So that's three references from Isaiah 61, which of course John would have known. So let's flip back to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then notice the next part. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for thee. Does Jesus mention that in His answer to John? Nope, skips it entirely. Now, if he cuts out the day of judgment part in Luke chapter 4 to make a point, perhaps cutting something out here is making a point too. Would you agree? So it could be that what Jesus is saying is that judgment will come, but today is the year of the Lord's favor. And no, you will not get out of prison. Okay. And then Jesus goes to talk about the importance of John. He says, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Who did you go into the wilderness to see and be baptized by? A reed? Swayed by the wind. Now we talked about the lo- local Jewish king that Herod, or excuse me, that John the Baptist had insulted, had coins where a reed next to the sea was kind of the image or symbol. And so maybe Jesus has kind of taken shots at the local ruler. Did you go out to see that guy? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in what? Palaces. So... I think Jesus is taking shots. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Malachi 3. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now, oh, 
We've looked at a whole lot, and if you're lost, totally understandable. The story of Luke begins with an angel appearing to a man named Zechariah, promising a son that he is to name John. And John is coming in the spirit of Isaiah and Malachi to prepare the way for Messiah. What will that look like? Well, Zechariah prophesies over John and says, well, it's a salvation that will come And part of that salvation will be deliverance from our enemies and those who hate us. Even when he's addressing Israel in Luke 3, John is saying, listen, judgment is coming. He's coming. Judgment is coming. He's coming. There's a great separation about to occur. Jesus shows up. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. And he cuts off that quote right before the day of vengeance. And he offends his hometown by pointing out there were times when God would move outside of Israel because of Israel's hardness of heart. Hey, here's a military leader that got healed. Here's a widow and her son. Luke tells us then a story about a military leader whose servant was healed and a widow and her son. And then immediately has John the Baptist ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Well, what's the one to come mean? Well, it could mean, hey, Jesus, where's the judgment that was promised? If I'm Malachi 3, when you come, who can endure your coming, right? I mean, you're going to purify the temple and the priesthood, right? You're going to restore your rule over all the nations, right? Why am I in prison? And Jesus responds, yeah, oh my goodness, let me tell you what's going on. And he quotes from Isaiah. All of these things Messiah was to do, and he skips the part about release of prisoners. Now, what I find so fascinating is that John didn't see what became clear to later New Testament writers, that it wasn't a Messiah coming in the way he expected one time. It was a Messiah coming twice the same Messiah coming twice. Coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then returning in judgment. Okay? John didn't see that. Nor did John see that some of what he was prophesying was actually happening. Israel was being sifted and sorted right then by Jesus. Jesus was the dividing line, the lightning rod. He was separating. And he does pronounce judgment. There is no question. We'll see later in Luke. He is pronouncing judgment over that generation for their hardness of heart. Their temple will be destroyed. Their nation will be obliterated. But if somebody like John, who was Jesus' cousin, filled with the Spirit, recognizing Jesus, can misunderstand part of the Messianic agenda, perhaps it is with great humility that we must proclaim we could too. Would you agree with that? And this line that Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. You think that's still relevant 2,000 years later? Oh my goodness. Because what's being said here by Luke is that Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the expectations of Messiah, but in ways that nobody saw coming. Maybe he still does that. And maybe still for those of us today who thought saying yes to Jesus meant that, But we find ourselves over here, maybe the words, blessed are those who do not stumble on account of me, maybe those are still relevant words, you think? Because one of the things we learn about 
God through Jesus is that God is totally reliable, but never predictable. Never. Same yesterday, today, and forever. We've talked about this. He's holy. He's good. He's righteous. He's perfect. And his ways are a whole heck of a lot higher than mine. Because if I were God, I'd do it a a little better. (laughs) Or at least I'm tempted to think that every now and again. Right? I mean, how many of us have found times when it wasn't my sin that was causing me to stumble, or it wasn't my mistakes that were causing me to stumble, but it was, God, I can't figure this out causing me to stumble. Why this? Anyone ever been there? I mean, I love it when Jesus offers a hard teaching and all of his disciples leave and he looks at Peter and says, you're going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? I've been there! (laughs) This idea that Jesus comes even today in ways that just, what? Don't always make sense. And this is a word for our time. Because how many of us sit with expectations about how this thing's going to go and then it's going a completely different way? I mean, some of the stuff happening in our church, I mean, marriage is just blowing apart left and right and things happening physically to folks and you're just going, what? How many times I'm tired of praying for healing for people and not seeing them healed? I mean, I read all about this stuff. Where's that? I mean, there have been times, and I've told you some of these before, forgive always the repetition. But we found our little, little sweet dude had Down syndrome, right? We had, we had hesitated having a third child specifically because we were afraid of having a child with Down syndrome. We felt like God said, live by faith and not by fear. Yes, God, yes! Boom. The thing we were most afraid of happened. Now, as it turned out, That was awesome. But it wasn't awesome in the beginning. It didn't feel awesome. It felt like, really? Really? See, it wasn't that I was stumbling because of doubt, and it wasn't I was stumbling because of my sin, although I'm sure there was plenty of both. I was stumbling because I thought it was going this way, and now it's over here. You pray for your spouse, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to heal him. I am the one, but I'm not going to heal him. Or this marriage. Yeah, I could make them love each other, but I won't. See, there is a huge messianic thing that Luke is tapping into that I just want to take a bit of and say, I find myself in this story a little bit. I went into when I was 32, went into surgery uh, for an ACL, came out with panic attacks that night. Four years of just brutal, brutal, brutal panic and anxiety and clinical depression. What's that? Healing, waiting, striving, working, nothing. And these aren't huge trials compared to what some of you are going with. But I know he can heal. Why doesn't he? Is it my lack of faith? Have I screwed up? See, I think we find ourselves in the place, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. I think that's a pretty common place for us. And it's not because he's not good, no. 
It's just because how I define good and how he defines good are two different things. Good for me is comfortable, convenient, consumeristic, materialistic, and individualized. Right? Good for him is holy and righteous. A treasure in a jar of clay. Who loves jar of clayness? (laughs) So, my thought this morning is that maybe it would be worth praying for each other because I would imagine there are some of you here that are in danger of losing heart. I don't mean your salvation and I don't mean wandering away. I just mean you're in danger of losing heart. There's been a certain thing that you really thought would be taken away, healed, or changed, and it hasn't been. And you're just sitting there and you're going... And perhaps Jesus this morning would just say, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. We pray for healing. We work for changing. All of those things are still true. And yet, He's never predictable. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, like the wind, blows wherever it will. My ways, higher than your ways. Yep. Hey, Job, where were you when I made zebras? Oh, you weren't there. Okay. And that's it. So, I want to ask you to do something courageous. We've done this before. If we can pray for you today, I'm going to have you stand up right where you're sitting. And then a group of people, just the people sitting next to you, are going to gather around you and pray for you. And we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask your name. We're not going to get your information. We're just going to pray. Because I do believe some of you are here and you're in danger of losing heart. And my prayer as I was praying over this all week was that we would be able to have faith and grace and peace imparted to stand in the journey. Knowing that there is this promise that somehow it works for good even though we're not quite sure how. So I want to invite you to do something very bold. If we can pray for you this morning, if there's just something causing you pain, would you just stand up right where you are right now? And then we're just going to spend some time gathering around you and we're going to pray. Oh, thanks for being honest. Thanks for being honest. So how this is going to work, we're just going to invite the disciples of Jesus sitting around you to gather around you. Maybe put a hand on your shoulder. And we're just going to invite them to pray. We believe God will guide their prayers. That He is close to the brokenhearted. And we don't promise any quick fixes. We don't promise that you'll walk out and it'll all be better. But our prayer is that you will be strengthened and that you would have hope and that you wouldn't stumble on account of Him. So, if you're a disciple of Jesus, would you stand up and gather around, particularly people in the back. And we're just going to play a bit of music. I need a bunch of you, by the way. If you have a pulse and you love Jesus, welcome to our prayer team. We think the best expressions of church look like this.
Now, if you're wanting to be prayed for, raise your hand. I just want to make sure you got lots of people around you. Okay, in the back. More in the back, if you would. And just begin to pray. I'm going to pray for you, but you go ahead and start praying for them, all right? All of you can pray at once or you can take turns. Were you standing, was she standing to be prayed for? Okay, I need some folks over here. Thank you so much. This is a very beautiful thing. So begin to pray. Father, we call heaven and earth as witnesses to the fact that you are good and that you are faithful. Father, we also recognize the journey of faith is so hard sometimes. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that you would be close to the brokenhearted. Father, we intercede on their behalf. Ask you, mighty God, that you would strengthen them, that you would bless them. Father, that you would allow them to walk and to not stumble, to run and not grow weary. Father, we pray that you would bring healing and that you would bring salvation, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Hear our prayers, Father. Speak to your people. Would you continue to pray for those? Would the rest of you stand if you're not already? We're going to worship together. Continue to pray, though.